Welcome to Practical Christian Living. But godliness with contentment is great gain. If you are content where you are and you're a godly individual, then it's great gain. Not financial gain, but it's great gain in your life. You have discovered the secret to life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. God wants us to be content because we trust in Him. We don't worry about being generous or helping others because we know God will always take care of us. With more on how we can be truly rich as Christians, stay with us for more out of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 7. Here comes Robert Furrow. You can't serve money and God at the same time. You will end up loving one and hating the other. The second thing it says here is, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things that you have. It's not a matter of don't be rich. I I covered this briefly in my blog last week, and I had a couple people that were upset because they read it as me saying, you can't have money. That when I was talking about not coveting, that meant you can't have money. And so they were writing saying, God's given us blessings and money. So I don't know how I worded it to make them think that, but it's not saying that you can't be rich. It's not saying that you won't be rich. It's saying to be content with what you have. And that's the thing that everybody has in common. Whether you're poor and you want more, or you're right in the middle financially, or you're wealthy. Someone asked a millionaire one time, how much money is enough money? Well, another million. A few years later, they asked him again, well, how much money is enough money now? Another million. It's always more than you have. And we know that even the wealthiest among us are not happy. They are the most miserable, in fact, aren't they? They aren't happy with their cars. They aren't happy with their houses. They aren't happy with their spouses. If I can get another car, another house, another spouse, I'll be happy. And so they end up with eight, nine, ten divorces. And then if they have all of that in place, they have a good home, they have a good house, they have a good marriage, they're not happy with their looks. And so they get their face changed like Bruce Jenner. I read an article, and maybe I shouldn't, you know, bring him up like that, but I read an article about him last week and what happened to his face, because you know that when you look at him, I can't quite put my hand on it, but something just isn't right. It's hard to improve on what God does, all right? So something just isn't right. And I read an article, and he was, it was I think, the 90s, and, and he was divorced, just freshly divorced. He had a lot of money, and he just wasn't happy with the way he looked. Be content with such things as you have, see? There's always a sense of not being content because money can't satisfy you. And that's the last point in this verse. Look at it again. It says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You have God in your life. You have Jesus. You have everything you need. And if you are living in poverty now, he'll take care of you. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't toil, they don't work, but your heavenly father takes care of them. But you seek first the kingdom of God and God will give you everything. Be content in your poverty. Paul said, I have learned to be abundant and I have learned to have nothing and I have learned whatever state I'm in to be content. He was a man that had both. You might say to someone that has money, that's easy for you to say, be content in your poverty. Paul had both of them. And said, I learned to be content in both, with abundance and with nothing. Be content if you've got money. In fact, the Bible says, tell those who are rich, there are those of you here, and you would be considered rich. I don't know if you consider yourself rich, but we consider you rich. How many of you in here are rich, by the way? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to see your hands. 
The Bible says, tell those who are rich not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. It doesn't say tell them not to be rich, but don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. And then the Bible says this, if there are those teaching godliness, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, if there are those teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. There are those in the church, part of the faith movement, who teach that God wants you rich. The first time I ever heard that message, I was 19 years old, and I heard someone teach that God wanted me rich, that I was a king's kid, and my God owned all the cattle on a thousand hills, and God wanted me rich. I thought while I was listening, what a coincidence. God wants me rich and I want to be rich. This is great. We both see eye to eye. And he told us, in fact, that God wanted us to have a Cadillac. I was 19 years old. I didn't care about a Cadillac. But then he said, God wanted me to have a Corvette. Amen, brother. <laughs> so when I was driving home that night in my 1972 Vega <laughs> with diamond tuck seats, God reminded me of that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5. Those that are teaching godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. That shouldn't be going on in the church. Are we really using the pulpit to encourage people to get rich and telling them that God wants them rich instead of God wants them godly? And then it says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you are content where you are and you're a godly individual, then it's great gain. Not financial gain, but it's great gain in your life. You have discovered the secret to life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There are those who get involved in business whether it's a multi-level marketing program or whether it's a business, maybe you go to a conference that's teaching you on marketing. And one of the things they'll teach you in a conference on that is that you can go to churches and you can network in churches, that churches are like a good place to network. Here's the problem with that thinking, okay? If you've gone to conferences and they've told you to network in churches, stop it. In fact, let me slap your wrist, okay? Stop it because now you're using people. They're teaching you not to develop friendships so that you can know people and minister to them and love them, but they're teaching you to develop relationships to use them. That's like an addict, isn't it? What does an addict do? And you, those of you who have maybe friends or family that have become addicts, they see every person in their life as a resource. What can you give me? What can you give me? What can you give me? I had a friend who had become addicted and I told him, you know what? The church isn't giving you anything anymore because we're just, just enabling you. We're not helping you. And he said, why don't you reach into your pocket and give it to me? Just like that. Reach in your pocket and give it to me. I said, no, sorry. I'm not going to do it. Not because I can't, but because he just saw me anymore as a resource. All I was was money. And you know what? Once I wasn't the money anymore, he was gone. He didn't, he didn't really care about me at that point. Well, the same thing is true if we turn our friends into ways to make money. This is one of the downfalls of bringing a multi-market level company into the church. In order to be successful in it, they tell you that you have to turn your friends into resources. Go out and get to know people so you can get them selling it under you so you can make money by them. And these things not only get into the church naturally because people get involved in it then see people in the church as a resource, but they're told to go into churches. And I want to tell you, if you're doing that here, stop it. Don't use people. Only 5% of people involved in those things make money anyway. And they're held up as people who will make money. But here's what happens. They begin to tell you that having money and making money in this company, being successful in this company, is what being godly is really all about. Those who teach godliness as a means of financial gain, get away from them. When me and my wife were first married, I worked at a shop and I was invited by my boss to his house for dinner. 
I was really honored by that, by the way. I, I worked at this shop and I was the youth pastor at Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque at the time. He was a Christian. And so I was really honored that my boss asked me to go to his house for dinner. But I said, sure. When I got there, there was a chalkboard in the living room, which first of all made me go, I wonder what this is about. I had already been exposed to Amway when I was a whole lot younger. As I was a teenager, I had one of my friends that really got involved in it, and he did the same thing. He went to church, we were Christians, and he started telling everybody, you know, this is really how you live godly, and you can make a lot of money, and you can be a good Christian and make differences in people's lives. I mean, everybody became a resource for him. So when we walked in, there was a football player there too, played for the uh, Denver Broncos. He was a kick returner, and he had returned a kick in the Super Bowl, I forget what year, 78, 79. He showed us his Super Bowl ring. It was all real neat. Then, before we have dinner, I'd like to share something with you. He gets his little chalkboard out, and he starts drawing these pyramid ideas and what can happen. Well, my wife and I were very familiar with it. We had already had friends involved in it. We had already fought some against it. And my wife did what wives do, pinched my leg, <laughs> right? You gals do that to your husband? It hurts. You go, I know it hurts. That's why I do it. Gets his attention. And so she pinched my leg, which meant to me, get me out of here. And so I stopped him. And I said, listen, I already know what you're talking about. I've already know what you're doing. And I told him what it was, which they were not wanting to tell us what it was, okay? And even when I told him, I knew what it was and called it by name. He said, well, no, it's something different, which it wasn't, okay? It was what it was, which tells us if you got to hide it, there's a problem. But after I stopped him, he said, well, don't you want to be rich? And I said, no, I don't want to be rich. Part of me was just being a bit antagonistic at that point. I just was a little angry that we were taken advantage of in that way. So do you want to be rich? No, I don't want to be rich. I want to be poor. I want to be stinking poor, okay? I won't ever have money. I want to be poor, poor. I told him, I don't want to be rich. And he goes, how ungodly is that? How carnal is that, that you don't care about people enough to make money to give to them? Where's that in the Bible? Now, making money and wanting to be successful in business is godly. All of a sudden, it's a complete turnaround. No, be content where you are and don't use people as resources. Love them and be committed to them and look at what you can give to them. If you really care about them, then give to them. Give them the money that you've made. Give them all the money you've made. You made so much money in it. Anyway, that's my soapbox for multi-marketing things, all right? And I'm sure I offended several hundred people this morning. All right, the next thing that we see is what I've called the character that we have to have as Christians is bold in belief. In verse six, so we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That you stand up for Christ wherever you are, whether it's school or whether it's your job, where it's places where people will make fun of you. Some of you guys are persecuted where you work and it's a hard thing to go to every day. It's hard to be persecuted and put down and made fun of for the sake of Jesus. But I wanna say to you, if that's the case, then take it proudly. Stand up and be persecuted for Jesus. He died for you. He was mocked and persecuted for you. And when you are mocked and persecuted, not because they hate you, you understand that it's not you they hate. You understand that it's Jesus. Jesus said, listen, the world would love you if it wasn't for me. He said, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. The world hated me before they ever hated you. Or if you're a student and you're in a class and there's some professor that has began to slam Christians or Christian thoughts or ideas, and you decided to speak up, now you're being mocked by the entire class. The professor is piling, the kids are piling on, and you're just feeling really torn down, and you're wishing you wouldn't have said something. Listen, be bold. What can men do to you? And listen, for a professor 
who's comfortable in front of people. These guys are good at what they do. They know what it's like to stand in front of a class. They make class interesting. They make class fun. And for them to call out a Christian, a young Christian, a young believer, and mock them in front of everybody else and make them look bad, I think, well, you guys know what I think about it, right? Could you imagine if I was holding a class on the Bible and an atheist showed up? And because I'm comfortable in front of crowds and he's not, I pointed him out and mocked him and the whole place mocked him with me. Can you imagine what you guys would think of me? You would leave thinking, you know what? Robert's a jerk. That's what he is. That he would do that to that guy is absolutely unbelievable. So why does a professor get to do it? Why does a professor get to tear a kid down who is uneasy, uncomfortable about where they're at and use that against them? And they're okay. I think, well, I'm not gonna tell you exactly what I think. But here's what I'm gonna tell you if you're a student in this, that position. Take it proudly. Be willing to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. Count it an honor to be able to take persecution for his name because they persecuted him. And in the end, what your friends think in a class or what other college students think in a class, and they do this to freshmen, by the way, it's in freshman classes that it's the worst because freshmen are feeling uneasy. They're in college, they're in classes, they're feeling uneasy in these classes and then they get hammered by these people. But take it proudly. Stand up for Jesus. What can men do to you? And we should stand up for him no matter what people think of us. Listen, living for Jesus means that in the eyes of the world, you're gonna come down a few notches because the world sees us as Christians as weak. It's the way it is. It's part of what the enemy does. However, we know that we have the answers to real life. And so we should boldly say, he is my God and I don't fear what men will do to me. The Bible says the fear of men is a trap in the book of Proverbs. And then it says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Let's fear what God thinks about us, not what some professor or some boss or some coworker thinks about us. Let's fear what God thinks about us. What can man do to us? And finally, the last of the Christian developed character is in verse seven. And I've called this sincere in service. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. And jump ahead to verse 17, same topic. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, God wants our experience here to be an experience of joy. He wants us to be able to minister to one another and be joyful in what we do. And it says, remember those who rule over you. Now that's kind of hard to hear because we don't like the word rule. Remember those who rule over you. But in reality, Ephesians tells us that God has given gifts to the church. I am a gift to you guys. <laughs> we have men like Charles Swindoll, Greg Laurie, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, Raul Reese, others that I could name that God's given to us in the body of Christ that we would be strengthened and stand fast and do the work of the ministry, local pastors as well. And God has given them that they would rule over us spiritually. That what we talk about when it's the Bible doesn't mean that you don't look at what's being said. Doesn't mean you don't question what's being said. You wanna be like the Bereans, receive the word of God with joy, but you search the scriptures daily to see if these things are true. And it doesn't mean that you can't point out a problem with a pastor. 
If ever you find yourself in a church and the pastor says, don't you touch God's anointed. Don't you ever question me what I'm doing. Don't you touch. You know, it's time to get out of that church. Every pastor, every leader is under the authority of someone. He would not be an authority if he wasn't under authority. And in every church, there's some kind of a system to help bring authority to that guy. Whether it's a board of deacons or as it is with us, a board of elders, or there's a board of directors. Sometimes it's congregational driven, which is always the worst. <laughs> because if there's a vote of confidence on a pastor and you win by 51%, you got 49% of the people that didn't want you there. <laughs> Isn't that gonna be hard to really minister in that situation? Nevertheless, it at least is some kind of accountability. And if the guy's got some sin in his life that is open, there's always someone you can go to. First of all, you should go to him, right? Because that's what the Bible says. And if nothing is resolved, then go to those that are in authority over them. If uh, someone at our church, if a pastor at our church is out of line, we've had it happen before. Years ago, we had a pastor that started borrowing money from people in the church. And it was really sad because he went to people that he had done weddings for and funerals for. And he said, you know, I'm really, really hurting right now, really suffering financially. And, and they would say, well, is there anything I can do? Well, well, yeah, you could, you could give me some money. You could lend me some money. So they would lend him money and then he wouldn't pay him back. And he was borrowing more and more and more. And I, on top of that, I knew what we were paying him. I knew we were paying him well. We've always tried to pay the pastors on staff well so they don't have to turn around and, for a couple of reasons. So they don't have to turn around and ask people for money. I also want them to be able to be generous. I want them when they go out to dinner with people at our lunch, people at the church, that they don't go, when the check comes, uh, uh, well, I guess, uh, I want them to be able to go, I'm gonna go ahead and get that. So I knew what he made. And then he was taking advantage. And when someone called anonymously, listen, there's a pastor on your church and he's taking money from this woman who's really suffering and she's really struggling and he's not paying her back and I just wanted you to know. And she said, I'm not gonna tell you who it is. So I called her back and I said, listen, I really wanna know which pastor it is. You gotta tell me, I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not, I'm not gonna tell on him. I said, please tell on him. I wanna know who it is. And so finally I went around to every pastor in the staff. Was it you? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? They all told me, nope, 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 nope. About a week later, I found out it was one of them that told me no. I fired him, not necessarily because he was taking advantage of the people. That is a breach of pastoral ethics. Pastors don't do that to the flock. They don't fleece the flock. They don't take money from the flock. They're there to help those who they are ministering to. But partially too, just because he lied about it. He, he lied about it instead of being honest. And he was, you know, didn't have the pastoral ethics to not take uh, from these people that are there. We also found out that he was taking drugs from people that he was going to minister to who had illnesses, which is all a violation of the, the pastoral ethics that are out there. I want to know that. When someone is living a lifestyle that is ungodly and they are pastoring, they need to be under accountability. However, having said that and understanding that point, right? There are always things in pastors' lives because pastors are people. That's a bunch of peas, isn't it? Pastors are people too, like Horton hears a who. A person's a person no matter how small. Um, they're gonna have flaws. And there's gonna be things that you go, I don't really like that. There's gonna be things of pastors in small churches that aren't liked and things in pastors in large churches that aren't liked. And if you start to full of malice and contention, talk down that person, what happens is, is people that were receiving the word of God with joy and excited, when they start hearing those things, no longer is there joy and excitement in receiving the word. So remember those who minister to you and those who give you the word. The word remember also could be translated, mention them. Remember them and mention them. In other words, pray for them. 
or lift them up. Look for ways to encourage the body so that the gifts that have been given to the body and pastors and teachers can be edifying to the entire body. For pastors, they aren't to lord over people. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, those of you who are shepherds, shepherd the flock of God among you and do not rule over them or do not lord over them. Even though here it says, remember those who rule over you, to the pastors, he says, don't lord over the people. In other words, a pastor isn't supposed to go, you better do what I say. First of all, I think you lose all authority when you do that. If you, as a pastor, have to say, I'm the pastor, you're supposed to do what I say, you no longer have authority. It's just like a boss that does that. If you guys have a boss, a manager where you work, and they're like, I'm the boss. Well, not anymore. You just lost all that, that respect as the boss. If you have to do that, then you're really showing that you don't have authority in what you're doing. And if you have to say to people, as a pastor, you guys need to stay here. This is where God moves and everywhere else God doesn't move. And this is the only place he moves and you guys need to stay here. Have you ever been in a church like that? Well, he's lording over the people. You guys, they go to him and say, God's telling us to move to the other side of town. I think we're going to go over here. No, no, you can't move. God told me you can't move. Really? Well, God's telling me to leave you and get as far away from you as I can possibly get. For us, as we look at those who are teaching us, we say, I want to remember them and I want to lift them up. For the pastors, for myself, we learn not to lord over people, but to lead by example. First of all, living the things that we're sharing. And in that comes a real authority as things are preached. And the authority that God has given to pastors is so that the word of God can transform and change people's lives. Let me end with this. So there's the six Christian characters that he brings up here at the end of the book of Hebrews. And if we will bring them into our lives, not only will we be salt that is salty, not only will we make a difference in our testimony, but we will find real joy. The Bible talks about joy that comes from obedience. In fact, if you want to study it, read all of Psalms 119. It's a long psalm, okay? But through that psalm is woven this thought. Those who are obedient to the Lord are full of joy. You find it over and over and over again, delighting yourself in his word, delighting yourself in his commandments, being obedient to God brings joy. It's a theme that runs through that particular psalm and it's awesome. You want real joy in your life? You want a depth of joy in your life? Then you don't seek after the joy of sin because it's only there for a season. It's fleeting, but you seek after the joy that comes from a, a heart that loves God and wants to do what God wants you to do. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we take time to gather together and, and study your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these truths and dig them deeply into us. Lord, we agree that for a Christian, marriage should be honorable, our conduct without covetousness, that we should love the brethren and be compassionate towards those who are struggling. We agree that we ought to be bold in you and not fear what men can do to us and that we ought to respect those that have been put in authority over us spiritually so that we can see your kingdom stand strong and fight against the gates of hell. But Lord, we don't always do these things. We don't always have this character developed in us. We want to. We pray that your spirit would work it out in our lives and give us practical ways that we can make these changes because we know it. We know what's in our heart. And we want to live for you without anything in the way. 
And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.